Welcome to Make It Kick-Ass, where we help leaders of growing communities bring their people together with purpose and lasting impact. Join us as we explore how to make events engaging, exciting, energizing, and profitable so that you can build a healthy, sustainable community. I'm Isaac Watson, founder and lead strategist at Kick-Ass Conferences. And I'm Nessa Jimenez, operations manager at Kick-Ass Conferences. Now let's make it kick-ass together. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast episode for today. We are so excited to have our guest, Tara McMullen, with us. This is going to be an exciting conversation. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground here, and we're going to have some fun while we're doing it, talking about all things uh, self and future of work and all. Just we're, we're going to be all over the place. Just wait. Buckle up. Here we go. So uh, without further ado, Tara McMullen is a writer, podcaster, and producer. She has investigated the future of work for over 14 years, and I've known her for quite a few of those 14. I don't Most remember them, exactly yeah. when we met, but it's it's been a hot minute. Uh, so for, she works uh, with coaches and influencers, uh, from independent educators to marketing professionals and gig workers to micro-entrepreneurs. Tara probes how today's independent workers navigate the uncertainty and precarity of the 21st century economy. Mm, you know, little things. Uh, <laughs> and, and through this, she wrote a book called What Works? A Comprehensive Framework to Change the Way We Approach Goal Setting. She is also the longtime host of What Works, a podcast about navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Incidentally, this is the podcast that I, is usually my go-to recommendation for people pursuing any kind of business effort uh, because it's just fantastic. And Tara is also, because that wasn't enough, the co-founder of Yellowhouse.media, a boutique podcast production company. And to boot, her work has been featured in Fast Company, The Muse, and Quartz. Tara, it is an honor to have you on here and to have these conversations as always. Welcome, welcome to Make It Kick-Ass. Well, thank you, Isaac and Nessa. It is so great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And I know that Isaac just went through like a little bit, a little list of your accomplishments, but I wanted to hear from you in your own words, like, tell us a little bit about yourself and like the work that you're doing and, and your professional focus right now. Yeah, so um, my work today is really about, um, you know, I've, I've started to sort of put it in the category of criticism and just really looking at what's going on in culture and media and the online world and thinking about it through the lens of independent work and the future of work, how work is changing, how our relationships to work and to ourselves as workers are changing. Um, I think we're in a period of just really rapid economic evolution. Um, and a lot of that is going in ways that are very sort of anti-human or and definitely anti-worker. Um, and a lot of the social contracts that we've had about around work for the last 50, 60, 70 years are being broken open in ways that are making life really, really hard for people who work, which is 
just about everybody. Um, and those same ripple effects then go through all other sectors of the economy as well. So whether you are someone who owns assets, owns businesses, uh, you're an entrepreneur, or you're someone who doesn't work, like I'm really interested in how our discourse around work impacts um, sort of the ripple effects into all of those different groups of people um, and how we can f figure out how we can make the 21st century economy something that does work for more people than historically a capitalist economy has worked. It's amazing. I, uh, in following your journey across the, the years, this is, I wouldn't call it a pivot, but at least a, a shift in the past couple of years in how you've been approaching these conversations. I think a lot of it stemmed from the start of your podcast, What Works, and these conversations that you had with business owners about what it means to run a business and and whatnot. How, what, what was, was there a catalyst for this current shift in the conversations you're having and this kind of introduction to critiquing how we work today? Yeah. So I both see the work that I do today as pretty different from the work that I was doing before and also a continuation of that thing. So I often reference that from a very early age, one of the questions that's been a driving factor for me has been, why do people believe what they believe and how does that impact what they do in the world? It's why I studied religion in college. It's why I continue to study religion today, why I continue to study philosophy and look at sociology um, and look at critique from a wider or criticism from a wider perspective as well. Um, and so that particular thread has gone through my work year after year after year, um, but only in the last, well, actually, let me back up. I think that the first few years I was, uh, I was an independent worker, I was a business owner, those questions were closer to the fore. And then as I became more successful and as I um, started getting busier and as people were asking me for different things, those questions started to, to seep sort of down into the background a little bit more. And then, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, um, those questions started making themselves very known to me again. And I think that they've only become more emergent and more salient over those those years. And so the last uh, two to three years, I've been just very explicitly asking these questions. Why do we believe what we believe and how does that change what we do in the world? Um, and just looking at it through the language of work and the language of business um, and sometimes the language of personal growth, because those things are all related as well. Yeah. So you, uh, over the years, you've also uh, led and hosted communities around mm -hmm. these conversations. How has your community uh, responded to this shift um, in these conversations and how has that affected your business? Yeah. So this is, how long do you have? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, you know, the response to how I think about and how I uh, approach business and work, as that's evolved, my audience and my communities have evolved with me. And I think most people that were invested 
um, whether that was financially or just like emotionally with me, um, came along for the ride. And they were seeing the same sorts of things that I was seeing and had questions. And I was willing to take those questions and wrestle with them. And naturally, of course, that then kind of evolved how I was doing what I was doing and and for whom. Um, you know, obviously, people fall away or there's a negative response here, a negative response there. No problem. Um, up until the end of 2021, business wise, it was very much a continuation. So from say I started in 2009, but sort of like the bulk of the business that I ran for a long time was, let's say 2011. So 2011 to 2021 um, was pretty continuous um, from an evolutionary standpoint. I, you know, I wouldn't call anything that I did there a complete pivot. It was more like, this is the need that I see now, or this is the question that's being asked that I really want to dig into. And so there were you know, new offers and offers that got retired, but the the sort of the core of the work stayed the same. The end of 2021, um, I essentially stepped out completely of that business. And so for as many pivots um, as I've done or, or as many pivots as people perceive me having made uh, over the years, um, that was the first time that I completely severed the commercial relationship that I had with everyone. It was just a complete, like, I need to be done with this. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Um, but it was, you know, mental health and just sheer exhaustion, sheer burnout um, and deep, deep depression. So I had to get out of that business for health reasons. Um, I had to get out of the position that I was in in terms of the the leadership of those groups and so from that point so from december 2021 until today um the business that i have been running really isn't a business at all it's it is um i would say that what i do is way more akin to just freelance freelance writing freelance podcasting freelance whatever um and i you know i still have the business that i run with my husband sean which is yellow house media but the sort of Tara McMullen, Tara Gentili business um, that was around for so many years really kind of ceased operating at the end of 2021. Um, and I've been, you know, obviously I was terrified of that decision to step away from that business and a terrified of, you know, disappointing people and letting having to let people go and and not being able to follow through on on what I felt I had promised them um but I've been shocked at just how consistent people have been like I just hosted a a workshop yesterday um for Yellow House and you know there were people that have, were members of the What Works network who took quiet power strategy like they're still there. They're still following along, uh, even though I had to make that really hard personal decision for myself. Yeah. I'd like I'd like to dig into that a little bit because mm -hmm. I, um, in conversations that we've been having with community managers of all sorts, there's a lot of talk about bur burnout moments and this kind of perpetual need to work in the community to to keep it rolling along, and it in a lot of ways it can result in very unhealthy practices. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those um, 
those symptoms that you encountered um, that kind of gave you the sign that you needed to step away and how, how you kind of grappled and, and coped with that? Yeah. Um, so I have also been having these conversations with, um, you know, like Reddit moderators and community managers uh, just even recently and thinking about moderation and community management as this like essential 21st century economy skill and how little it is valued. Um, it is the reason that companies like Twitter and Facebook and Substack or whatever make money that it is it, they are moderation companies they don't know that they don't believe it and it's why they have the problems that they have but it's also why they make money so with all that being said um we worked really hard at the what works network to to have a firm flexible but really firm structure uh, around that community. So, you know, we had community policies. We had a full-time community manager. I was not managing that community, right? That's, that is not my skill set. Um, we had, you know, we had all of these things in place and just kind of creating those things is, um, is, uh, you know, affective labor, if not emotional labor. But as, the sort of environment, both online and in the wider culture, shifted between 2017 and 2021. We kept, we were running into more and more sort of road bumps. And something else that's um, kind of cropped up in the last couple of years for me is that I learned that I am autistic, which is something that I had sort of suspected for a really long time, but also like could not bring myself to fully investigate. And when I did, it was just so obvious but for me what that like my experience of autism means that i see what people need i see their underlying motivations i see sort of the code that's underneath how they're presenting to the world um, because i have to rationally and uh consciously construct those things to understand social context i see that really really well what i'm not good at is personally dealing with those things. But what that meant was that I was in a position, still am in a position, where when something sort of like, when something difficult comes up, I'm the go-to for like, how do we handle this, right? And I can do it. I can rationalize and, and consciously help someone work through like, okay, I think this is going on and this is going on and this is going on and so this is what we need to do. But it is incredibly taxing work for me. The other thing that was kind of going on in all of that, too, is that whatever I whatever my internal experience was, I put on myself. But I think it was also a very real expectation that when I showed up on Crowdcast or Zoom or wherever I was showing up, that I looked a certain way. I talked a certain way, I behaved a certain way. And so, you know, I had this experience in August 2021 where Sean and I were about to hop on a client call uh, and I had just been crying because I was so just broken down. Um, and I, that whole month I was just spontaneously crying, which if you know me is like not a thing that I do if I'm healthy. 
um, it's not even a thing I do if I'm unhealthy. Like, I have to be really, really unhealthy. Anyhow, I had just been completely crying. The camera, you know, the call started, the camera came on, and I saw myself in the camera go, you know, on the screen go, hey, how you doing? And I didn't, I couldn't recognize myself in that moment. Like, the person on the screen was not me. It was this weird, very tangible, concrete experience of dissociation that I was unfamiliar with, and it scared the crap out of me. Mm. Um, but in, in it, that experience, in a nutshell, was what I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis, multiple times a day. Um, and it was just really, it's just breaking me down. Um, so it was in that month when I really started to think, okay, what's my next step? Where do I go from here? How do I rearrange things so that it's better for me so that I can handle this better? Um, but you know, I, I came home from that trip and I was, you know, just kind of mulling still all of these things over at the same time that I'm like Googling, like, should I check myself into rehab? Like, what is wrong with me? Um, And yeah, so at that point, you know, I said to my therapist, like, this is what's happening. And she's like, well, how do we fix this? And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) And it was sort of that realization and then basically had the same conversation um, with my full time community manager as well. Just wasn't planned. It was just like, you know, she's saying, how do we what do we do? Where do we go from here? And just realizing, like, I can't do this anymore. Um, So being able to admit that put a lot of things into motion that allowed me to wind things down and then and then step away at the end of that year um i don't know if i answered your question but that was what came out of my mouth just now i think you did uh i I really appreciate your your openness and honesty with that and i think it's that's those kinds of feelings are going to resonate with a lot of people who work in any kind of space whether it's community management or not that where you have this kind of need to perform um, in your work. I mean, I think we all do at some stages and there's a degree of that that is healthy and, and sustainable and whatnot, but there, there come times like what you experienced where there is this massive mismatch between the two things. Yeah. I think that Arlie Russell Hochschild's work on emotional labor is super important for anyone who's wanting to understand what community management, community leadership, moderation does to a person. Um, And so she wrote a book in 1981, I believe it was, called The Managed Heart, where she examined, she spent a lot of time with what were called then stewardesses. Um, And then she also spent time with people who worked in um, debt collection and call centers. And she was looking at like, okay, these are two very different, very distinct jobs in which people are required to perform emotionally as part of the job description. Mm -hmm. So emotional labor in the last few years has taken on a a bit of a different context and a bit of a different connotation. Um, But where the term originates is with Hochschild's work in the managed heart. And so she talks about how, you know, flight attendants have to, you know, fix their face, right? Like if 
if someone's yelling at them, they have to remain calm and smile in the face of people being awful, abusive, um, aggressive. They have they have to stay calm. That part of their job as the person who makes things safe is that emotional response. So it doesn't matter what you're feeling on the inside. You have to project this particular emotion with uh, call center people or with debt collection. It's the complete opposite thing, right? Like you might be deeply empathizing with the person on the other end of the phone and you have to maintain this outward, uh, uh, you know, power and kind of almost shaming or definitely shaming um, attitude toward the person on the other end, no matter what you feel for them. And so this uh, sort of manufactured separation between internal emotional state and external emotional state within the context of work is then what she calls emotional labor. And she talks about how emotional labor has uh, sort of mental and emotional consequences the same way that manual labor has physical consequences. Um, and so she talks about how dissociation and self-alienation are one of those consequences, but also that you lose the ability to understand how you are feeling inside because of all that, you know, if, if eight, nine, 10 hours a day, you are performing an emotion that's different than the emotion that you are feeling, you actually lose the capacity to identify that internal emotion. And it's not just like the identification that's the problem, of course. It's that when we can't identify things, we're not actually feeling them. We're not actually able to respond to them. How do you do self-care if you don't, if you're not able to recognize when you are in need of self-care because it's been worked out of you? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a great book. First off, it's just, it's really good. It is academic, but it's, but it's very readable. Um, and it's, I think it would be a really great read for anyone who's in one of these kind of roles where the emotional work is part of the job description. Um, and it really does. Like, I just, I so love that she's willing to say, no, this has real consequences. This is just as consequential as manual labor. It's different. We need to address them differently, but it's something that we need to take really seriously. Um, and I think that's true. It's definitely true in these very um, sort of affective jobs, but it's also true for just about anyone in the knowledge economy too. Like the expectations on our emotional states and our outward presentation is so great, especially when we're communicating online and we don't have all of the same resources that we do when we're communicating in person. You know, we're having to gesture more wildly. You know, I find myself, oh my God, sorry, very small digression. I took a couple of writing classes over the last few years and they were all on zoom which i hate um and i would find myself sitting as a student in these classes but doing the thing that i do as a group leader which is smiling really big and my oh, eyes are big and i'm sitting up straight and i'm nodding <laughs> 
that, like that right there. Like no one else is doing that. Everyone else is like slumped over and, you know, they're not anywhere close to their camera or their microphone or they're too close. Um, but there's me. Yes. This is wonderful. Keep going, please. Right. Like, why am I doing that? But that in a nutshell is what these jobs do to yes. us. It's what these online platforms do to us. And it's not a problem as long as we know that it's happening, that we're compensated for it, mm -hmm. and that we are given the space and resources to take care of ourselves. And that's what doesn't happen in the vast majority of online communities or offline communities for that matter. That is so true. I oh, and I, I relate so hardcore to what you just said, because like <laughs> <laughs> during events, especially online events that we've done, like I'm usually, you know, moderating the chat and like getting people to talk or like I'm leading uh, like networking events and stuff. And I've noticed that because there's a couple of Twitch streamers that I really like that mm -hmm. I watch and I catch myself like in the chat, like being like trying to be the hype person for the streamer. And I'm like, what do I do it? You right. know, like I'm, <laughs> like I'm just here to enjoy myself. Like, you know, why, why, why am I doing this? But it, yeah, it, it, so I definitely caught myself doing the same thing, like assuming that role for everybody else, because I'm like, oh, this this is what you're supposed to do, right? Yep. Um, but related to what you were saying about this issue about like community specifically, and going back to what you talked about emotional labor. So mm -hmm. when you were as the community leader, you were creating community for others, right? And you had mm -hmm. the community manager, you had that structure, but where was the community then for the community leader as yourself, right? Like what, where were you getting that community and, and how has that changed maybe since you were in that role to, to the more freelance role that you do now? Yeah. So this is one of the hardest things I think about being someone who has at least some platform, some prominence, um, some reputation as a leader in the space is that there is no community. Um, I have friends, I have relationships, but also in the midst of all of this, I only have so much bandwidth for social interaction. Um, and mine is extremely low. So like, um, you are my seventh call this week, which is highly unusual for me. And I will absolutely collapse tonight. I have one more to go after this. I don't know. We don't know how this week happened. It was just a whole, you know, mix of things. But I was sick to my stomach on Monday thinking about all of the calls that I had to do. Um, so anyhow, all that to say that, you know, for me, the the social interaction I have to do for work, the things that I get paid for um, at that time did not allow me to have social interaction on a friendly basis. I didn't or on a, you know, on a on a basis where I could show up in a community. But also, you know, the, the other hard part about that, and I don't have an answer to this particular problem, is that there is no community that I could go into that I knew of anyway, um, where somebody didn't know who I was. Mm. And you can't talk about you can't ask for help. You can't talk about 
you know, your problem with so-and-so client, because that's traceable, right? It's not hard to figure out mm -hmm. who I'm talking about. It's not hard, like I can try and cover all of my tracks, but I can't, I, there's no way for me to do that. Um, and, you know, we deal with it now too, with, with podcasters, like where would I go to get help on a client problem that we're having? There's nowhere. The people know who we produce. You might not be able to run down a list of it, but it wouldn't take long if someone wanted to, to figure it out. Right. And so it's really lonely on top. And, you know, that's something that I hear from other people over and over and over again. As I said, you know, I do have personal relationships. Kate Strathman or Kate Tyson now, um, uh, Charlie Gilkey, uh, you know, lots of not not lots, but a, a core group of people um, that I can talk to. But I can't talk to them if I don't have the bandwidth for it. Mm -hmm. And so part of what needed to happen uh, with me stepping away from that from the the community was reclaiming my bandwidth for relationships that were more two-way um you know because i was getting to the point where oh, sean was getting so upset with me because i literally couldn't talk to him at night i couldn't talk to him in between calls i had nothing left for him so um how it's changed is very very slowly i have found that one thing that i can do that makes me feel better from a like just kind of being plugged into a group where no one needs anything from me is uh taking classes you know so i've i've taken a couple of writing classes through nyu i've taken a couple of classes through catapult um i there's class more classes that i have my eye on and it's really nice to just be able to show up and you know for all my big mouth grinning and trying to cheer people on through my facial expressions, you know, for the most part, I recognize no one there needs anything for me. I'm here for myself, um, which is really cool. And it was so weird the first time I did it. It was at the end of 2021, the first time I did it. And it was so weird, but also <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> um, so that's that. I do have a little bit more room for just, you know, random text message conversations with friends. And I think the people that I've stayed in touch with best um, and who I do have that more mutual relationship with are the people who just will remind me on a regular basis, I don't expect a response from you on this. Or if you don't respond to this, I'm not mad at you. Mm -hmm. And I won't think you're mad at me. Like, this is cool. I know you have limited bandwidth. That has been, and Kate and Charlie are two wonderful examples of people who have done that for me, where it's like, okay, I don't, like, you are demonstrating that you're thinking about me, that you care about me, that you are there for me. And also you are demonstrating part of that by saying, it's cool if you can't text me back. Like, I don't care. That's been incredible. Um, so that's not really an answer to where I find community now, but that is for me, um, well, I will also just say, too, that one of the things that I've had to kind, to kind of come to terms with over the last couple of years is that I just don't need lots of friends. And it's really weird. Uh, you know, so many people don't get that. 
They just don't. And when I say I don't need lots of friends, like I've got my husband and I've got a couple of people that I text message with. And there are lots of people like Isaac that, um, you know, I have so much affection for, but also like I probably couldn't keep up a two-sided conversation for more than like an hour like this once a, every couple of years, right? right? It's nothing, it's right. nothing with Isaac. It is everything about me. Um, and that's a weird way to live for a lot of people, but that's just how I'm wired. Like literally that's how I'm wired. Yeah. Um, yeah it's totally about it. Like I think I, I, in a way, I think that's kind of, uh, the problem that's been created with this concept of like, thought leadership where, mm -hmm. where the thought leader has to be super popular and the thought leader knows all the things so then they find themselves in a situation where you know it's hard to ask for help when you've been selling yourself not you but like I see on LinkedIn for example it drives me nuts with like every, everybody's a thought leader like if everybody's oh, a thought leader who, who's listening to the thoughts like I don't understand what, what's going on right and so it, it has created this vicious cycle of um how do you have community when when you're trying to be like the one on top right and so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested then in what do you think how do we solve that problem then because as humans like we need community so how, where do you think in relation to like the work that you do what what possibly can be done right yeah I mean so again this is a hard one for me because mm -hmm. I don't need community. <laughs> I need some, I need some social interaction. I need like, like I need to message back and forth with people every so often. <laughs> and I but need to be able community. to community. That sure. Is. No, yeah. I really like the definition of community where we're talking about community as mutual concern for mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. And so the sort of informal relationships that I might have on Substack or on LinkedIn or wherever, or like in podcast conversations, to me is not community. It's a great social interaction. It's a great conversation. I'm glad to be able to be a part of those. But it's not something that I feel like I belong to. It's not right. something that I feel... Um, uh, sort of a long term or even uh, anything less than a, or anything more than an ephemeral relationship to. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that, you know, for me, I think that part of where I find community is just immersing myself in the work of others. Um, and what I mean by that is reading a lot of books listening to even more podcasts. Um, and now, uh, just in the last couple of months, I've switched my newsletter over to Substack. And Substack is a really cool place where writers are doing really cool things. There's plenty of crap on it, too, right? There's And there's plenty of, you know, reactionary righties that don't like radical lefties like me. Um, but... There's, you know, there's, there is a large contingent of people who are just thrilled to be able to talk writer to writer on a daily basis. So that's been really great as well. But yeah, I, for me, I find my quote unquote community by actually engaging with other people's work. And I hope, like, my goal, my dream is that my work 
fills that role for someone else too. Like that I don't have to be DMing with them or replying to comments for them to feel like I've thought about them. Uh, And, you know, realizing that they are one of thousands, but still that I've considered their needs, their questions, their sort of um, deviations from the norm, um, and that I've made work for them. So yeah, that's it's a non-answer, but it really is the answer for me. But I do no, I, but it's totally fair. Yeah. And and I think that it highlights for me the the core principle that community is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think what you've described is that you have in through understanding yourself better and what you need uh and also what your kind of limitations are and your boundaries are around social interactions, you've been able to find create a small community like there's no definite like community doesn't equal minimum number of things um or minimum criteria you have found a way to build up the people around you that that support you in the ways that you need and and for you that means friends that are low stakes right like who respect you who reach out who are there for you if you need it but there's very low expectation on return or output and that seems to be working so that's and that's great i think that's fantastic um i want to um shift slightly into um your your more recent work in what you're doing and the one thing that i really admire is how researched and um kind of holistic and thoughtful your writing has been your writing and your podcasting and content um in thinking about um especially what you were talking about earlier um about work being anti-human and mm-hmm. i want to kind of twist that invert that and and focus on how we can become more pro-human and mm-hmm. so i'm very curious in the work that you've done recently what have you learned or discovered or what what new ways are you seeing that people are looking to connect with each other through this year and beyond especially on the heels of a pandemic where we were so isolated where there was so much emotional um labor brought to bear and exposed out in the open how are we um how are we looking to connect with other people going forward this is a great question and also i think that people don't know how they want to connect yet i i think that there's a lot of acknowledgement that things are very broken online and offline Uh, that the tools that we've been given have not delivered on what they claimed uh, they were going to deliver on, Um, whether that's Zoom or whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, um, we're not being served by them. Um, But what I see is people just being like, oh, God, now what? Like, I don't, (laughs) if this sucks, like, this sucks. And also I can't do things in person anymore. Like I forgot how, um, (laughs) you know? Um, and so I'm seeing just a lot of very blank faces. Like literally when I talk to people, it's like, well, you know, I don't want to do this platform anymore. I don't want to do that platform or I don't want to do it in this way, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to meet people. I don't know how to, 
uh, you know, talk to other podcasters. I don't know how to talk to other writers. What do I possibly do? Um, and so I, I wish I could say, here's the trend that I see, or here's what I've seen work for other people. But honestly, I don't, other than what's worked for me, which is just not going to work for the vast majority of people. (laughs) Um, I, I can't pretend to know that. However, um, the piece that I wrote today was sort of on how we make meaning online and keeping in mind that any way that we are performing online and any way that we are constructing or creating meaning online is a conscious act, right? It is the thing that we are doing for a certain purpose. Um, And anything that we can do to bring more awareness to how we act, how we interact interact with other people, how we see other people, right? Like being very aware of um, what's called our intersubjectivity, right? Recognizing that I am human and that you are human and then engaging on those terms, not I am a human, you are a user, or I am a human, you are an avatar, right? That's where communication breaks down. Uh, That's why platforms break down. It's why communities break down. Um, But the more that I can be aware of the person I'm talking to is a human who has their own needs, their own desires, their own frameworks, their own beliefs and ways of acting in the world, right? Back to that original question. Um, The more I am open to whatever, right? Like, um, and when I can, when I do that, when I can see that, when I see other people do it, really beautiful connection happens. And it's platform agnostic, right? You can still do it on Facebook. You can still do it on Twitter if you want to. You can do it on Zoom. You can do it anywhere. But it's that jump to recognizing the humanness in the other person that I think is the key to remembering that you yourself are human um, and the key to remembering that work is a human endeavor Um, because culture, capitalism, all these, you know, all of these systems are constantly pushing us toward more and more machine-like behavior. And that's not some like weird AI thing that Tara's going to get up on her soapbox about. It is just like literally, if you're asking yourself if you're uh, performing efficiently today or whether you were productive enough today, you are talking about yourself in terms of machines, mm-hmm. right? These are machine terms or they're like agriculture terms. Either way, they're not human. <laughs> yeah. um, and so the more that we start to, um, become just even become conscious, you know, that when I'm talking about how productive I am, that is not an appropriate measure of my human value today. Right. Um, And it's fine. Like if I want to be more productive, cool. But Mm -hmm. where am I drawing attention to my human value and the humanness of the value that I'm creating or the value that I'm engaging with or the value that I'm consuming? 
Um, those are the things I think that are going to help us build whatever's next. Um, I said to someone this week that if if anything could, if any one word could describe uh, the period that we're in online and the, the media that we're consuming and, and creating online, it's turbulent, right? Mm. We don't know what's on the other side of this. We know that Mark Zuckerberg is going to find new ways to sell data and put ads in front of us. We know Elon Musk is going to do something wild to Twitter next week, right? Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be weird and it's going to look real dumb. Um, but, you know, and I know that Substack is going to make a decision I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. I know those things. And I know that as long as I keep coming back to awareness of my humanity and your humanity, that I will be able to figure out what the right next step is for me. Wow. That, yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Um, but I, and that's why I, I've really enjoyed your writing because it really, it does what a lot of writing does not do, and it's like recognizes people's humanity and 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 as whole people, right? With and not just a worker, not just the manager, right? Um, so then my question is like, you get it and you talk about it, but how do we help people that don't get it, like cross that line? Do you know what I mean? Like how do we get them to finally like crack that open and start, you know, uh, working towards that? Yeah, I, I mean, I ask myself this question literally every single day. <laughs> every single piece that I, I write is like, how do I take people on this journey with me? Because I've been on this journey for many years now, trying to unpack these things, trying to notice these things in different ways. And I've, you know, built up this like huge encyclopedia or glossary in my head of like all of the different things that I might be pulling on to tell a particular story or unpack a particular idea. Um, but I think when we're, we're, when we're in conversation with someone or when we're teaching a group or, you know, when we're standing in front of an event I think the I think what's most important is to be open to questions right so if someone's coming to you and they're beating themselves up about um, how productive they are or aren't or how efficient they are or aren't it's like why is that important to you Okay, that answer, why is that important to you? Why do you, you know, where did you find that message? Where did that come from? What do you, what are you afraid uh, is going to happen if you don't become more productive, don't become more efficient? And recognizing that some of those fears are about real things and real consequences because we live in the society that we live in. But also being able to acknowledge that is a step toward being able to acknowledge the next thing and the next thing after that. Um, what I'm tr what I am always very careful about is when I'm trying to unpack these things, it is baby steps. It is. All right. This is what you're feeling, thinking, doing. Let me, um, you know, I'm going to repeat that back to you. Let me make sure that I've got this. Then uh, you know, here, have you ever thought about this question before? Have you ever thought about this assumption before? Okay, let me, t let me tell you where I think this might be coming from. And then let me tell you where that came from. And then let me tell you where that came from after that, right? And just really breaking it down so that we're not ever asking people to make a leap that they're not ready to make. Mm -hmm. um, I will also say just on a super practical level, 
that a tool that I really love is the Immunity to Change framework um, by Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. And this framework is about understanding why we don't change the things that we say we want to change, right? Like if if I want to stop, um, I don't know, if I want to stop um, f- forgetting the laundry uh, in the dryer, which is like my number one thing that I do. Like, I don't know. The laundry's in the dryer. I don't feel like folding it. Um, why, if I say that I want to change that, why won't I? Because I can tell you now I won't. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea is that you walk through, um, sort of understanding, not just this habit that you, this bad habit that you want to change or this thing that's preventing you from hitting a goal, but you start to understand what you're com- what they call your competing commitment is what underneath that uh, desire for change are you actually more committed to? Um, Because we all have them. If there's something that you want to change and you're not changing it, there's a competing commitment there. And underneath of that, there's an assumption about why uh, or how that commitment is actually more important, right? And then, so they kind of leave off with a big assumption and like you work to change the big assumption, then you can change the competing commitment and then you can change the thing you actually want to change. I like to look at that big assumption, not just for what it is, but for where it came from. What are the identity aspects of that? What are the political aspects of that? The the social context around it. It's not enough to just know that this thing exists. We also have to know like, who the stakeholders are, how our class, our status is involved in that. And until we know those things, then we can't really unpack that big assumption. So that's the other thing that I just really like to think about when I'm talking to someone who's maybe newer to these ideas, or certainly when I'm writing, um, but also like if I'm putting a talk together, how do I get to the big assumption and then how do I unpack that assumption through these sort of political um, and systemic layers so that I can show people it's not you. <laughs> you aren't the problem. It's these other things. And now that we know that, it can be our choice and our responsibility to figure out how to live in these systems as long as they exist um, in a way that works for us and a way that is in their own way resistance to those systems. Thanks for listening to this episode of Make It Kick-Ass. We hope you found it entertaining and helpful. If hosting a community event is on your radar, visit GetEventLab.com to take our free 30-minute training called Community Event Mastery. That's GetEventLab.com or use the link in the show notes. Make It Kick-Ass is hosted by Isaac Watson and Nessa Jimenez. Post-production audio by Chris Nelson at Mittens Media. Our theme song is Feel It by Dojo for Crooks. Make It Kick-Ass is a production of Kick-Ass Conferences, an event strategy and design agency serving leaders of growing communities.